Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dina Stars is a young YouTuber. Until last week, her posts were fairly standard. Moodily lit, candid confessions about her rocky relationships. She has 70,000 followers on Instagram. No big deal, by American standards, but in Cuba, she's an influencer. Last week, she was talking live on Spanish TV when the security services knocked on her door. I hold the government responsible for anything that happens to me, she said before breaking off the interview. Dina had been uploading videos of anti-government protests on her social media channels using the hashtag SOSCuba. Two days passed before she posted on Instagram again. I've just come in through my front door, she said. I'm fine. Cuba's repressive regime has frozen time, but now it appears to be facing a reckoning, one that's being live-streamed. I'm on the side of truth, Dina says. Joe Biden would no doubt agree. How should he respond to the Cuban uprising? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how can the US best help Cuba? The crackdown against Cuba's biggest popular revolt in decades continues. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wants American technology deployed to tear down the cyber wall that filters the Cuban internet. President Biden has pledged to support democracy around the world. What does this mean for Cuba? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and Roseanne Lake, who covers Cuba for The Economist. It's currently in Connecticut, Roseanne, right? Otherwise, the internet connection probably wouldn't stand up to this podcast. But you're a frequent visitor to Cuba, and you must have had a busy few weeks. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I've been spending lots of time on WhatsApp, Signal, and Telegram, which are the preferred uh, ways to get in touch with Cubans these days. And Fazman, how are you doing? How's the writing going? Is it still agony? It's still agony. Uh, I got a reprieve this week and I'm, I'm editing as usual and then heading off for a secure, undisclosed location in Maine next week. So I'm going to let my brain rest for a little bit and hope it's, it's easier when I get back. Well, you can't let your head go on holiday yet because we need your brain in tip-top shape right through until the quiz. So Roseanne and John, let's start this with a reminder of how what's happening in Cuba can influence American politics. John, you've been speaking to a contact in Miami, which is headquarters of the Cuban-American diaspora. I have. I've been speaking with Fernand Amandi. He runs a political consulting firm called Ben Dixon Amandi. He's also a political podcaster. He's got a podcast called Strange Days. And he is a contact from when I used to go down to Florida fairly often. He's extremely knowledgeable about Florida politics and and Cuban-American politics. 
And unsurprisingly, Cuban Americans in Florida have been following events very closely. They're a powerful constituency in Florida. And I talked to Fernand to get a sense of how the protests in Havana are being viewed by Cuban Americans. For 62 years, since really the Bay of Pigs invasion, the policy of the United States government has been regime change will happen in Cuba when the Cubans themselves rise up on the island and call for change. What we saw transpire on July 11th never happened before. There is no documented incidence of an island-wide rising up of the population. You know, I'm 45 years old. I've been hearing about this tale literally my entire life, and it has always been a feeling and a hope and an expectation that the Cuban people on the island themselves would kind of come to the conclusion that that regime has been a cruel authoritarian dictatorship. This looked to be a comprehensive representation of all Cubans on the island, and I think that's what made it so stark, so unexpected, and so incredible. How would you rate the Biden administration's response? Well, you know, I I think at this point, uh, I would probably give them about a five or maybe a five and a half. There needs to be presidential engagement, whether that means President Biden himself offering an address with policy prescriptions or recommendations or using his platform as the leader of the free world who just came back from the G7 summit in Europe not even a month ago saying that U.S. policy around the world was around uh, democracy and human rights and leveraging uh, the relationships that the United States has with its allies to draw a spotlight on the actions of the protesters. Let me shift the discussion a bit to to sort of how Cuba affects American politics. I think historically, you know, American policymakers, American political junkies have tended to think of Cuban politics as basically a, a Florida thing. Do you think that is too limiting? What are the broader ramifications of Cuban politics and Cuban-American involved, political involvement? Well, I mean, look, you can't ignore Florida's role in this. And the reason for that is Florida is, without a question of a doubt, the largest concentration of people of Cuban descent that live outside of the island itself. And, and the reason that that plays perhaps um, an outsized political role and an outsized influential role is because so many of those Cuban Americans residing in Florida are voters and they vote in every election. And if, if, if there's one thing you can't say about Cubans is that they don't participate in the democracy and they don't vote in the democracy. And just because Florida is such a closely divided state, which in presidential years has a tremendous impact because it's electoral votes in our weird little system of an electoral college majority, which determines who the president is, it tends to be an outsized and out influence voice. And so what conclusion does that lead you to for 2024? Well, I think it's the obvious. You cannot ignore the Cuban-American constituency. There are political ramifications to this. Even though this is fundamentally a non-political issue, the liberation of Cuba is something that unites Republicans and Democrats. But the truth of the matter is, there are policy rewards and political rewards for a Democratic president that could preside over the liberation of Cuba. So, Roseanne, let's start with what's happening in Cuba. What are your contacts telling you about the protests and where they're going? 
Initially, uh, when the protest started on July 11th, there was excitement and sort of by the end of the day, there was euphoria, right? At the beginning of the day, there was the sense of, oh my goodness, this is unprecedented. What's happening? Where's this going? And as, you know, a map that's been going around started to populate with over 50 cities in which protests started to happen, people who had been waiting for this for a very long time started to get very excited. And then, of course, the Cuban media machine and, and the repression machine kind of sprung into action. And that's sort of what has moved to the headlines these days in terms of of what I'm hearing from my contacts. They've gone from a moment of, you know, euphoria and excitement and of possibility to a moment of just, wait, how did things end up this way? To date, there are over 500 people who participated in the protests who have been either detained or have gone completely missing. And a lot of the contacts that I'm speaking with are most worried about the ways in which these people are being treated, right? So a contact of mine said it very well when, you know, he said to me, they've they've gone from violent repression on the streets to legal repression in the courts. So he began to describe to me the ways in which many of the people who were detained are being denied fair trial. And this is done through mechanisms that are being invented to sort of make it more difficult to get any sort of legal representation. So he talked to me about how now, in order to get a lawyer, you need to ask for permission at the provincial level and then at the national level. And of course, you also need to know the date of your trial. And courts are purposely, he says, holding off on letting families know about trial dates so that it's making it even more difficult for them to get a lawyer. And so this has sort of become the focus of what a lot of people are worried about in Cuba these days. As another contact of mine said, the government has closed itself up like an oyster and and they're kind of in denial. They're not acknowledging that people are being detained. Yesterday, they they announced a new economic policy that, you know, this is so Cuban, right, to sort of to sort of ignore what's going on, ignore the elephant in the room. They announced a new policy, basically making it more complicated to hold a garage sale. So, you know, if you're Cuban and and you want to sell some secondhand belongings in your garage or in front of your house or in front of a park, you now need to apply for a license. And it costs 50 Cuban pesos a day to get this license. And if for some reason you don't manage to sell everything that you'd hope to sell in one day, you need to pay again and apply for a license the second day. This was announced yesterday in light of everything that's going on. I mean, there's, there's a huge sense of denial and frustration, naturally, because people thought they'd achieve something and, and the government is just responding in a, in a very authoritarian way. And Roseanne, can you refresh our, our listeners' memories? What was it that sparked this wave of protests? Oh, it's hard to say if it was one particular thing. Obviously, there is Cuba is right now in a, in a very difficult place economically. COVID is at its all time peak. Uh, there are no medicines to be found anywhere. Basic things, you know, for a country that prides itself on having a, a sterling healthcare system, there's no aspirin to be found. There, there's no asthma medication. There's no insulin. All of these things are gone. And of course, Cuba is also facing one of the the most acute food shortages that it's had in a very long time. Cuba imports 70% of its food because it does a terrible job of managing agricultural production domestically. There's no pesticide, there are no machines, but also there's this very sort of uh, inefficient acopio system in which farmers are, are forced to sell a certain amount of what they produce to the government. And of course, that disincentivizes any sort of meaningful production. And so the government's coffers are, are pretty dry. There's no tourism coming in. So the foreign currency that Cuba usually uses to import food 
has gone dry. They're not able to import food. So there, and of course, there also there were also blackouts, right? So imagine the combination of having a very hard time getting food plus blackouts, meaning you know, in in peak summer, high temperatures, whatever food you have in your refrigerator is being spoiled. If you have air conditioning, you don't have access to that. You don't have access to the internet because they're blackouts. I mean, all of these things sort of create a recipe for people starting to sort of awaken and go, wait a minute, hasta cuando, right? Until when will we have to endure these conditions? And it started in San Antonio de los Baños and a video of, of that protest there went viral and very quickly spread to over 50 cities across the island that very same day. And Rose, if you're a Cuban who would like the political economic system to change, what are the boundaries around what you can ask for? What level of demand from citizens is acceptable and and what's clearly beyond the pale? And is it clear or does the autocratic state in Cuba respond in, in quite unpredictable ways according to how threatened it's feeling at any particular moment? The latter. I think part of the strategy is to sort of never make it clear what the threshold is. This is turned into a call for freedom, and that's a very big ask. And so I think that the sort of gut response of the government has been to sort of weed out. So we talked about Dina Stars in the introduction, right? Weed out the influencers, weed out the people who have the most influence to sort of catalyze other people, but then also just other people who are out saying libertad or filming or taking photographs. I mean, not all of these more than 500 people have gone missing or have been detained are influencers. Many of them are. And there was this targeted response to sort of, you know, weed out the ones with the biggest platforms. But uh, it's not easy. I mean, to speak about activism in other ways, there are lots of LGBT activist groups that work and are very well organized on the internet and also offline. The same goes for animal rights. And when I speak to my contacts about, you know, if the regime were to, to, to fall or to just end, right, if the current government no longer existed, what is your vision for who might take control? And they say, we don't have one, right? This is still very new to us. It didn't give us time. We haven't had time to think about it. Our priority is fair process for those who have been detained or gone disappeared. But they do stress to me that some people may consider it invisible, but it's not when you think about it, right? These, these groups are very well organized within their respective domains. So the animal rights groups, the LGBT activist groups, for different causes, they are organized. So they understand this process. And another interesting thing to note is, you know, although people from all ages took to the streets on the 11th, there were a lot of, of Generation Z represented, right? And, and this is a generation for whom Fidel is not this incredibly charismatic leader who had this triumphant revolution. He is, as many of them have said to me, un viejo en chandal, right? He's, he's an old man in a tracksuit, um, which, you know, he was towards the end of his years. And they just don't have the same degree of respect for him. And that makes a really big difference because Fidel could placate. He could calm people down when there was any sort of, you know, rebellion or, or, or dissent. He, he could manage to calm people down. Diaz-Canel, the current president just doesn't have that power and the younger generations know it. And, and yes, there may be a power vacuum when he's no longer around, but I think they would mobilize quickly and, and find a way to occupy it if given the chance. Another line that they gave me that I thought was also very appropriate is um, dictadura sin dictador. So it's a dictatorship without a dictator. Now that Fidel is gone, Cuba still behaves like a dictatorship, but it doesn't have its dictator at the helm. He's probably rolling in his grave right now. <laughs> yeah, but he's comfortably rolling. He's in a tracksuit. 
<laughs> yes, he's in a tracksuit. I doubt they buried him in one, but who knows? Right. <laughs> okay, thanks both. We'll look back to how the old man in a tracksuit used an early visit to New York to troll America in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, now is the time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. This week, we've written about how to improve tax collecting in America. Lexington profiles Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor and potential dauphin of Trumpism. And if you're suffering in the summer heat, fear not. Our science section looks at next generation aircon technology. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the show notes for this episode. entire globe, even as it trembles in passion with the birth of new nations and shrinks in the hand of a dispassionate science, is today the site of a momentous conflict. The Cuban Revolution of 1959 raised the temperature of the Cold War significantly. Government movies from the time made sure Americans knew the stakes in this great ideological contest. As one of the adversaries in the conflict, we see a challenge as great as any in our historic past. It is the challenge of ideas. You can see the campesinos with their machetes, their straw hats, pigeons flying, let loose thousands of them as Fidel Castro came in. Fidel Castro had mastered guerrilla warfare in Cuba's remote mountains to overthrow an American-backed dictator. His best chance for a revolution in global opinion would come in America's greatest metropolis. Castro's relations with America started cordially. He'd spent his honeymoon in New York, and he hired a Manhattan PR firm to sugarcoat his return to the city as victorious new leader of Cuba in April 1959. He was photographed enjoying a hot dog and eyeing a tiger in Bronx Zoo. The next year, everything changed. Castro nationalized American assets in Cuba, and President Eisenhower authorized covert operations to depose him. In September 1960, Fidel Castro returned to New York to address the United Nations. If doubts remained about whose side he was on, they were gone by the end of his four-hour diatribe against imperialism. Even more symbolic was his choice of accommodation. When a posh midtown hotel demanded a cash deposit, the Cuban delegation felt they were being harassed. They moved uptown. The Teresa Hotel was known as the Waldorf of Harlem. Barred from booking rooms in New York's best hotels, all the black celebrities stayed there. Josephine Baker, Joe Lewis, Louis Armstrong. It served as a meeting point for African-American politicians. Malcolm X had his offices there. He arranged rooms for the Cubans. The people of the United States is good people. Harlem people is wonderful people. Castro's arrival electrified Harlem as he charmed TV crews in his faltering English. We will vote always with justice. We will vote always against colonialism. We will vote always against discrimination, racial. We will we'll vote against uh, imperialist exploitation of the people. 
Staying in New York's most famous black neighborhood helped highlight the sins of segregation, America's most obvious vulnerability in the contest of ideas. And we work a wonderful impression of Premier Khrushchev and Soviet delegation. Even the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, also in town to address the UN, came to the Teresa Hotel to meet Castro. Perhaps more significantly for the people of Harlem, Castro drew in the black and brown anti-colonial leaders. Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, and Ghana's new president, Kwame Nkrumah, all visited. When the time came to leave New York, Castro was handed a final PR coup. The US authorities seized his official plane to repay debts owed to American creditors. Simply because Soviet Tigara were friends, and here you took our friends. So the Cubans got a lift home with the Soviets instead. The following year, 1961, Castro declared himself Marxist-Leninist, severed relations with the US and thwarted a CIA-backed invasion at the Bay of Pigs. Castro benefited from America's heavy-handedness to burnish his image as spokesman for the Earth's downtrodden, a big win in the battle of ideas that helped him outlast 10 American presidents. John, last week we were talking about Joe Biden's China policy and noting some of the continuities with Donald Trump's administration. There's something similar going on here with Cuba, isn't there? You know, even though Barack Obama's policy was quite different, favoured opening up uh, somewhat economic relations with Cuba for the first time in more than half a century, Donald Trump put an end to that. On the way out, he designated the Cuban government to be a state sponsor of terrorism. And Joe Biden kept the embargo that Donald Trump restored intact. He did. He's in a bit of a difficult situation with Cuba, right? My assumption is that if he were to come out and offer full-throated support to the protesters, that might do more harm than good, right? As Roseanne said, the initial reaction of the Cuban government is to portray protesters as mercenaries. This would let them portray the protesters as essentially tools of the American president. On the other hand, I think Biden is probably temperamentally inclined to return to Barack Obama's policy of engagement. But it is difficult now, given the government's reaction to the protests, to argue for openness. So I think the best thing for him to do, which is also the hardest thing for Joe Biden to do, is to just keep quiet. Roseanne, do you think that's correct? It's such a difficult question. I know that it means a lot to the Cuban-American community in the U.S. and Miami in particular, that Joe Biden not keep quiet. But at the same time, speaking to people in Cuba, they will tell me, I mean, not everybody agrees with this, of course, but a lot of my sources have said, you know, estas cosa del pueblo, right? This is, this is up to the Cuban people to resolve. It's great that the U.S. cares and wants to help and has shown their support, but we need to do this ourselves. Like, there, there isn't really anything that the U.S. could do to tip the scales considerably. It's difficult, right? Other than, I mean, what he has done so far is say that he's going to open up remittance channels and send more employees to the U.S. Embassy in Havana to process more visas. And I think the reaction from a lot of Cubans has been, that's really great, thanks, but it took you six months to do that. And that's your response to an entire island for the first time ever getting together to to, to ask for freedom. Uh, so I think, yeah, had he kept quiet, there would be some frustration, but his response so far has felt underwhelming to many. 
Rose, is there even a case that a really full-throated American response to what's happening in Cuba, denunciation of the regime, which I suppose Joe Biden's already done, but you know something more active than that could actually backfire by allowing the regime in Cuba to play a sort of nationalist card, which it likes to play, saying you know we're under threat from that big superpower over the water and sort of invoking patriotic sentiment. Or, or do you think that's overblown? I mean, I'm just, it's so striking always when you listen to particularly older Cuban Americans in Miami. You know, they seem fully supportive of another go at military invasion, some, you know, which is not going to happen, by the way, some very muscular version of, of policy. And it, it's always struck me, or at least struck me when I was in Cuba a long time ago now, that that sort of talk is pretty helpful to the Cuban government, actually. It is. Fingers are going to be pointed at the embargo. It's going to be said that this is all CIA-sponsored. I mean, whether the U.S. says it or not, that that is absolutely going to be used as a tool. So I don't know how productive it is other than sort of, I don't know, placating certain constituencies in the U.S. that that feel like we need to respond in a certain way. But I've thought long and hard about this, and I, I'm not sure there really is a ton that the U.S. can do. I think this really is... Es cosa del pueblo. It really is something that 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 Cuba needs to sort out. And, you know, obviously the U.S. wants to support it as best as it can, but there isn't a really easy way to do that. Roseanne, we heard in that segment just now an example of American heavy handedness, seizing Fidel Castro's plane, giving the Soviets a, a, a propaganda boost. How do Cubans, not the government, but but ordinary people view the United States sort of currently and, and, and historically going back to the Bay of Pigs? Ah, uh, well, um, I guess it depends which Cubans you ask, right? I was I was lucky enough to spend some time with the Bay of Pigs vets in Miami a couple of weeks ago. And I think the most useful takeaway from spending time with them was just perspective. It was understanding, one, that, you know, as Cubans like to say, we've seen this film many, many times, right? We think that the government is about to fall and it doesn't. This has happened many times over the decades because there have been many attempts, a lot of them spurred by U.S. heavy-handedness, uh, try to poison Fidel in a hundred different ways. All of that, uh, that has happened over time. But I think what was most fascinating to me in speaking with these gentlemen who are obviously much older than, you know, when, when the Bay of Pigs invasion happened was that they left a very different Cuba. And it helped me understand why Cuban-Americans in particular are so are, are so anxious and, and so angry with what happened and, and why they want it back. I mean, one veteran that I spoke with was describing his life before he came to the U.S. and before he joined the Brigade 2506. And he said, you know, we had a pretty normal life. We had a station wagon. And I stopped and I said, a station wagon? Oh, my God. Like, nobody in Cuba has a station wagon, right? It, it, for him, that was just a normal thing to have. But 60 years later, it's a supreme luxury. And if you have one, it's very old. And most likely it's being used as a taxi to transport, you know, about 12 different people to the outskirts of Havana. And so just details like that. And also, you know, he was 17 when he enrolled and 16 when he left Cuba. And he said, we basically lost our childhoods or our, our adolescence for this. One day, you know, he had just gotten his license. He was driving behind a school bus to chase the pretty girls. And the next day he was on his way to Guatemala for training to, to prepare to invade. And so when you hear that side of the story and, and you understand how different Cuba was and how much 
how much people loved their lives there before they changed very dramatically. You get a better sense of what it is that that they want to recover after all of these years and what they've been denied. So that was very valuable context for me to just keep in mind when I try to understand this very fraught battle over this island that just has outsized political importance, right? Just because of how much it means to people. Okay, thanks, Rose. We will be back in a moment to talk a bit more about how internet connectivity is changing political activism in Cuba. A striking aspect of the protests in Cuba was how they unfolded online. The island was, until relatively recently, completely sealed off from cyberspace. The Cuban-American technologist Antonio Garcia Martinez has been covering the latest developments in his newsletter. It's called The Pull Request. And I've been asking him about the Cuban internet. Cuba is an anachronism in almost every way, whether it comes to politics or technology. Phones were illegal until 2008, mobile phones. The only way to really get access to the outside world until very recently was public Wi-Fi and public squares outdoors. And it's very expensive, it's very slow, and so it's not used terribly often. Given that challenge... Cubans do all sorts of weird hacks. One is called El Paquete, the package, in which they literally download a week's worth of internet and put it on an external hard drive or a USB stick and then like copy it and sell it and you plug it into your computer and you interact with a week of the internet, meaning Netflix shows, Formula One, whatever. But it's not, there's no give and take there. They're not really online. And then more recently, which is what's making these most recent protests really fascinating. In 2018, for the first time, the government made it possible for, for Cubans to actually have data on their phone. So Cubans had smartphones, but it wasn't connected to anything really. And that took a while to adopt. It's still very expensive. But starting about a year ago, you had people who were kind of experiencing the black mirror, to use the name of the TV show, that you know has all the world's eyes and ears in it sitting in their pocket. For the first time ever, Cuba had exposure to that. And so they're going from basically no internet to the full catastrophe, so to speak, uh, in the span of like weeks or months, while the biggest protests in at least three decades are going on, which is why this is so so fascinating to watch. And there's been some discussion in America of the government or even perhaps private individuals improving internet access for Cubans and allowing them to see more of what's going on in the rest of the world, perhaps organize themselves, protest more effectively. You know, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, has talked about beaming the internet into Cuba and talked about a 4G voice of America. There have been suggestions that Facebook or some other large US tech company might float balloons over Cuba and sort of beam the internet in. How feasible is any of that stuff? Right. This all sounds like wild-eyed <laughs> schemes. Um, however, as you're pointing out, companies like Google and Facebook have actually floated ways of getting um, internet to hard-to-reach places. Uh, Facebook actually purchased a solar-powered airplane, Wi-Fi plane company for a while. And there was what's called Project Loon that Google had. But it actually does work. So one proof point is when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico a few years ago, Project Loon apparently actually flew these balloons and actually offered actual 4G internet. And so the um, the plan here is that both DeSantis and FCC Commissioner uh, Brendan Carr, and I just noticed today the Assistant Secretary of State have basically said, we're going to work with private companies to try to get internet into Cuba. And I think you made the right analogy, which is Voice of America. One slightly more Cuban in origin, there's a thing called uh, Radio Marti, Radio Marti, that is effectively the same. It's Voice of America for Cuba. That's been running for, for decades now. And so this, this is basically the updated version of a Voice of America. And the technology seems feasible. I think the real question is going to be the, the political will. 
go back a decade or more when there was the uprising in, in Iran and the regime there started to look vulnerable. There was a lot of excitement and talk about the role of Twitter in these pro-democracy movements. And I, and I guess since then, those big tech, big social media companies have been more associated with, with damaging democracy to, to oversimplify a bit. If the internet were more widely available in Cuba, how confident are you that it would help the pro-democracy movement? The reality is that these black mirrors in our pockets are just disruptive to the elite narrative no matter what. And we sort of applauded when it was Iran or the Arab Spring, and we're suddenly shocked when it does it to our own societies, right? I think that's the that's the reality of it. The critical thing about Cuba is that, A, this is happening so quickly, right? Like the one of the most followed accounts on Twitter has 30,000 followers, and he joined less than a year ago on Twitter. So the, none of this even existed really a year ago. And secondly, the difference between what is the elite or the public narrative, right, the, the state-controlled media inside Cuba versus what you see on the live stream of, you know, state security agents beating up somebody is enormous. That gulf is enormous. It's hard for me to imagine the impact that ubiquitous network mobile computing has had on everything from the Arab Spring to our own societies. I don't see how that doesn't have a similar impact on Cuba. I, I'm not saying it will necessarily lead to the downfall of the state or, and will magically have Cuban democracy, but I don't see how it doesn't lead to more and more disruption. Rose, given that internet access here does seem to be a politically disruptive force in Cuba, why doesn't the government, given that it's as authoritarian and censorious as it is, why doesn't it just turn off the internet? Well, they did briefly um, on the 11th. The internet was down on pretty much all of the island for a couple of hours. Um, and then uh, a report um, by uh, Yucabyte, which is uh, an organization that sort of tracks internet usage in Cuba and a whole bunch of different statistics related to it, reported that uh, the government lost something like $13 million just in turning off the internet for those few hours. So in short, it's an important source of foreign currency uh, for Cuba. So, uh, you know, internet is run by a monopoly, by a DEXA, uh, a state-run monopoly, which obviously gets to charge exorbitant prices for connectivity. The downside to that for DEXA is that, you know, well, one of the upsides is that a lot of that money comes from the Cuban diaspora that tops up cell phone and, and, and connectivity accounts for relatives. But um, when you turn the internet off, of course, that money doesn't come in and, and those remittances dry up. And so essentially Cuba can't afford to turn it off. It's it's a critical form of remittances. Uh, Emilio Morales of the Havana Consulting Group estimates it's about $80 million a month. And I also think there's a social element to it, right? If Cuba really did shut off the internet, there probably would be huge social consequences. Um, taking that away from Cubans at this point, and also from their relatives abroad who use the internet to communicate with them, would cause a tremendous amount of social unrest. So there's the financial component, but then also that, which I think is very a very important point to consider. Roseanne, what about the embargo? It's become a sort of political hot potato here a bit, as it always does. I think Republicans in particular spy an advantage in pressing Democrats on it. How much difference does the embargo really make to the average Cuban? Ah, oh, very good question. <laughs> I think the best way to answer it is to sort of 
point out that there are two embargoes in Cuba, right? So there's the U.S. embargo on Cuba, which of course is very damaging and has been for a very long time. And embargoes tend to be pretty useless things aside from other than two occasions, maybe before you actually implement one and you use it as a threat. And then, you know, the day you're lifting one. Um, But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case, right? This one has persisted for a very long time for a very complicated list of reasons. And it does make transactions, financial transactions in Cuba more complicated. And also, you know, businesses are a bit more fearful of doing business on the island for fear of, you know, fines from OFAC, um, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, right? So it certainly does make things complicated. But when an embargo has been in place for such a long time, people naturally find workarounds to it, and Cubans have been very crafty in doing so. Um, The internal embargo in Cuba is also another very important piece of this. And I think Uh, one of the best examples of how that internal embargo works is one of the few things that the government did announce in response to these protests on July 11th was that they were eliminating the limitations on how much food and non-perishable medicine could be imported from other countries. And they were also eliminating the taxes, the import tax imposed on these things. And all of a sudden, Cubans said, you see, you talk about the U.S. embargo. What about this embargo, right? What about the taxes that you charge us on these things? You suddenly lifted them. Like, you have the power to lift elements of your own internal embargo. Why don't you do it? Um, and and I would say, you know, both obviously are, are very damaging. Um, but the internal one is the one that Cuba has the most control over. And they just, there is this, you know, as an economist that I speak with often likes to say, Cuba is the only country in the world that fights wealth instead of poverty. There is this aversion to letting people accumulate wealth to earn an honest living. There's, uh, you know, a word that you hear lots of Cubans say often is trabas, and it means obstacles, right? They're just constantly putting obstacles to any sort of meaningful accumulation of wealth. The example that I gave earlier about these garage sales is one of many. And and that, I would say, is is probably the, the ultimate source of Cuba's economic woes. It's this per- very persistent internal embargo. John, given that, as Roseanne says, what's happening in Cuba is 80 to 90%, maybe more, within the control of the Cuban people, and any outside power's ability to influence what happens there is is limited. And also, given the fact that Joe Biden has an interest in keeping Cuban-Americans in Florida on his side. Does that just suggest to you he's going to park this issue? You know, the embargo stays in place. He continues the Trump policy more or less and, and there's not much to see here, not much change in, in American foreign policy towards Cuba. So Joe Biden just recently announced his intention to put sanctions, targeted sanctions on officials with the Cuban regime. This would be under the under the Magnitsky Act which was passed to allow targeted sanctions on Russian officials. He's going to do the same for Cuba and I think that perhaps bothered some of the progressive Democrats, but I think he sort of had to do it. He has been in Congress for a long time. He has dealt with Cuba for a long time. And when you see protests of this scale, I don't think you can just stand idly by. And so he does have a challenge moving forward, which is how to respond in a way that doesn't imperil the protesters. It's how to respond in a way that sort of maintains some degree of of policy continuity that doesn't radically shift American policy very quickly. Um, but he does have to respond. I think there's also a danger for Republicans. There is a there is a protest this week in Atlanta that was, I think, organized by uh, some local Republican officials. Cubans turned out to show support for protesters and started heckling uh, speakers on stage 
who were trying to press their political advantage, who were, who, were, who were sort of deriding Democrats for their response. And the response was, we're here for Cuba. We're not here for you. So I think, as Roseanne said, it is a people's cause in Cuba. It's also a people's cause in America. So I think Cuban Americans will be watching both Joe Biden and Republicans very carefully to see what their responses are, to see that they themselves are not being taken advantage of for political reasons, and to see that the response to the Cuban protests are consistent with with American values and interests. Well, Rose, we've made you work so hard on this podcast, but I'm afraid your chores are not quite yet done because we have a quiz before I let you go. In June 1934, The Economist welcomed news of a new treaty between Cuba and the US under which the island would regain a measure of sovereignty. Cuba had been under US control since the Spanish-American War of 1898. The paper noted that America would retain a naval base at Guantanamo Bay. Despite Fidel Castro's protests, the status of the base remained unchanged after the revolution. The US government continued to send checks each year for the lease of the base, but they went uncashed. Where were they kept? In a safe in Fidel's office? I don't know. Uh, where would he keep them? In his wetsuit. He really liked to scuba dive. <laughs> <laughs> It gets points for invention, but Fazman is actually closer. Fidel Castro apparently kept them in his desk drawer, so he kept them close to hand. The most significant American cultural asset to remain on the island after the revolution was the writer Ernest Hemingway, a longtime resident. As US-Cuban relations faltered, the American ambassador warned Hemingway to leave or risk being viewed a traitor. The writer did leave, but not before the 1960 edition of his annual fishing contest was won by Fidel Castro, by his own admission, an angling novice. The Hemingway International Billfish Tournament is still going, although sadly suspended this year because of the pandemic. Which three big game fish have their own prize category? Oh, that's such a good question. Ah, man. I know that he fished a lot in Michigan, which is sort of where he grew up and developed his taste for fishing. And I believe there's still a Hemingway-related fishing contest every year in either Key Largo or Key West, um, and that they're gigantic fish, because I've been to his house in Key West and I've seen the photos, but I can't tell you which type of fish they are. I'm sorry. Marlin, tuna, and swordfish? These are good guesses. Tuna is one of them, or tuna, as we say in the UK. The other two were wahoo and dolphins. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. I imagine that in this context, we're talking about dolphin fish or Dorado, and they would, in fact, be liberated at the end of the contest. So let's hope that something similar happens to the people of Cuba in the not-too-distant future. Roseanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you so much to you both. Thanks also to Nico Rofast and to John Shields for producing... If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a review and a rating. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. The email address has changed. It's now podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. 